Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live.
and good morning. This is your morning gospel program, Morning Inspirations here on Talk Truth and Jam Radio. Our morning scripture is coming from the book of Ezekiel, the 40th chapter, verses 27 through 30, which reads, There was a great, there was a gate in the inner court south, and he measured from gate to gate toward the south hundred cubits, brought me to inner court south gate measured the south gate according to these measurements. The chambers thereof and posts thereof and the arches thereof according to these measurements. And there were windows in it. Arches thereof around about it Fifty cubits long, five and twenty-five cubits broad, and the arches around about about were five and twenty cubits long and five cubits broad. I read to you of Ezekiel, the fortieth chapter, verses twenty-seven through seven through thirty of the day as we continue with reading of the book of Ezekiel. Morning inspiration. I can feel the warmth of love around me. 
This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Good morning and thanks for listening. Good morning to East Virginia. Thank you for listening to the end. This is the Other Morning Gospel Program, Morning Inspirations on this Sunday.
I tried to show from 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 12 that the gift of prophecy is going to cease when Jesus comes back. Perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. 
And I drew out the implication that while the lights are burning in this age until the sun rises, they are burning. That is, the gift of prophecy is still with us. It's intended to be useful to the church until the Lord returns. It says back in chapter 1 that they were filled with the gifts of the Spirit, waiting upon the Lord. Somebody sent me a letter this week to draw my attention to that. It said, see how they were waiting for the Lord, connecting the second coming with all those gifts. What I want to do this morning is begin with a little preface about the sufficiency of Scripture and the finality of the Bible as God's revelation for us. By that I mean this Bible with the 66 books, the Christian canon as we call it. Nothing that I say today, nor have said, nor shall say about the gift of prophecy should be construed to mean that prophecies today would ever stand on a par with Holy Scripture. When a word of prophecy is given, it does not become Scripture. Scripture is closed and final. It judges prophecies. It is not added to by prophecies. It is a foundation, not a building in process. I want to make that very, very clear from the outset. Now, the best way to see that in Scripture is to just compare the teaching of the apostles, which we now have, in the New Testament with the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. How did they relate to each other? An example is in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. It goes like this. If anyone thinks, this is Paul the Apostle talking now, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, my word as an apostle stands as the criterion of what is passable as a claim to prophecy. That's the way it will always be. The apostolic word stands over any claim to be exercising a gift of prophecy and judges it. Another example, 2 Thessalonians 2. Verses 1 to 3, the situation here is that Paul is writing to this church because he's heard that they're in distress, they're shaken, they're worried, because some prophet, perhaps, came along and said, the day of the Lord is at hand, and they're all frightened. The reason I say a prophet might have said that is because in verse 1 it says that a spirit might have done it. Let me read it for you, and you can hear how Paul responds to this. First three verses, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet Him in the air, or our sending to meet Him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited either by spirit, see, somebody claimed to have a spirit perhaps, or by word or by letter purporting to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the apostasy or rebellion comes first. Now, what's Paul doing? He's saying, I don't care if anybody's prophesied that the day of the Lord is at hand. I don't care if there are 2,000 people heading for Montana. I have told you what has to come first, and it's not here yet. Do you take my word or the prophetic word? 
You see how Paul uses his authority. Now, we have this authority in this book because the, the apostolic authority goes back and endorses the Old Testament for us. So did Jesus. And so the whole thing, all 66 books here, now function for us as a platform on which we stand. It's not in process of being constructed by a prophetic word here and a prophetic word there to which we add every now and then a little more information so that we know the nature of God better and His way in the world better. That's not the function of New Testament prophecy. So, New Testament apostolic teaching is now found in uh, the Bible, and we have a sure word with which to test every claim that comes along to prophetic activity. I wanted to make sure that I announced that clearly at the outset, that Scripture is complete, it is closed, it is sufficient, it is the test of all other claims. Now, let's go to Acts 2. Because Acts chapter 2 is, is an epoch-making text and an, an amazing statement of fulfillment of prophecy that has a direct bearing on the Bethlehem Baptist Church and the movement of God today. And I want you to see that and let you test my teaching against this word. You know the situation, 120 men and women gathered waiting to be clothed with power from on high, according to Acts 24, 49, waiting to receive power that they might be witnesses, Acts 1, 8, waiting, waiting and praying, according to Acts 1. Spirit comes like the sound of a rushing wind and the flames of fire, and they are all, according to verse 2, four, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. Now, if you want to know what they're saying, you look at verse 11. And this is important for understanding prophecy because Peter's going to say in a minute that what's happening here is prophecy. Verse 11, some of the visitors to Jerusalem who are listening to what's going on here say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Well, here they are, 120 people. And they are evidently extolling God. They're saying great things about God, about His character, about His attributes, about His love and grace, and about what He's done in the world and the exodus and creation and Mount Carmel and uh, the restoration of the Jews from Babylon and the sending of Jesus Christ and the busting open of the tomb and the exaltation of the right hand and He's coming again and they're just blurting out these glorious things about God. What is that? What's going on here? Verse 16, Peter gives his explanation. And this is terrifically important. This is an epoch-making event here. He says, they're not, they're not drunk in their ecstasies. Rather, what's happening here is epoch-making prophetic fulfillment. Joel 2.28 is coming to pass before your very eyes. Quotes it. In the last days, verse 17, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Now let's just stop right there and let that sink in. All flesh means the whole world of human beings. 
All the peoples of the world, not just the 12,000 that have been reached by the gospel today, but the 12,000 that need to be reached in the next few years. He's going to pour out His Spirit all around the world. On all flesh, it's going to be a worldwide spiritual experience. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So part of this outpouring will be marked by an incredibly widespread experience of prophecy. And he gives three categories of people that are going to be involved in this. First, men and women, your sons and your daughters, will prophesy. Second, young and old, young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. Third, high and low class, men servants and maidservants. In those days I will pour out my spirit on them and they shall prophesy. So you got two highlights in that text. Joel has seen the end coming. The end begins to come right here in Pentecost and the Spirit is poured out. And the first mark of the Holy Spirit's outpouring is unbelievably widespread prophetic activity. Not just an Elijah here, an Isaiah there, a Jeremiah here, a Moses there, but men and women, old and young, slaves and free, prophesying about the great things of the Lord. Verse 11 is. Verse 11 is a description of prophecy. That's what's going on here. It says, it will happen in the last days. When is that? When are the last days? Back a few weeks, we talked about that in detail. Well, Peter says, they're now. This is that which Joel said in the last days. We live in the last days. You ask, well, where are we in relation to the last days? What's after the last days? Well, what's after the last days is the coming of Jesus. We live in the last days, a long extended period of last days. Hebrews chapter 1 2 says, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, so that the last days came with Jesus. Jesus is the mark of the last days. The Messiah has come, and he's reigning in the last days, waiting till he puts all of his enemies under his feet in the last days, and then the last enemy to be defeated will be death, and the last days will end with an eternal kingdom. We're in the last days. And I just am tempted to speculate a little here and just ask you to consider... If the prophecy of Joel, as he looked into the future, he saw that the Holy Spirit was testifying in his own heart, there's going to come a day that's so different from this day. There's going to come a day when he's going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh, and one of the chief marks of that is prophetic activity. And we see that at Pentecost. Today we have 12,000 unreached peoples, lots and lots of believers who don't seem to even... Think about prophetic activity. It makes me wonder whether or not the last of the last days might be the time when this prophecy. Last days sort of got off to a good start, Pentecost, and maybe the last of the last days. 
we'll really discover what this text is all about. When the all flesh is fulfilled in the world mission of the church and the prophetic activity is fulfilled in what we're trying to dig out and discover in these days at Bethlehem. That's my inclination is to think that that's what's going to happen. There are a lot of people thinking that we're, we're on the brink of an incredible worldwide revival and the completion of the Great Commission through unheard of numbers of third world missionaries and awakening in mission circles and opening nobody ever dreamed would happen among Muslims and things that I don't know about are going on I'm sure I think what we see here in Acts 2 is a confirmation of last Sunday's message. I argued there that when the second coming happens, the gift of prophecy will cease because the gift of prophecy is through a glass dimly. And when the imperfect, or when the perfect comes, the imperfect goes. This text says that in the last days, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maidservants, in those days in which we live, according to the New Testament, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. And then the end will come. And Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Joel, who first prophesied these words, Peter, who first preached them, and Luke, who wrote them down for us to read, do you think those three inspired spokesmen meant that there would be millions and millions of people speaking with Scripture authority, add their words to the Bible whenever they speak? Is this a prophecy that there will be people who have the right to write Scripture because they're speaking with verbally inspired utterances? Or is the prophecy here that this experience is on a different order than the verbally inspired, infallible utterances of biblical writers? Morning and tonight, I'm going to try to make a case that the prophecy that is prophesied here that will happen to your men servants and your maid servants, your old and your young, your men and your women, worldwide, all flesh, thousands and thousands of people, is not scripture quality utterances, not verbally inspired speech that's infallible. That's my thesis this morning, and it's going to be tonight, and uh, I'm going to try to wind up with a crisp definition of this kind of prophecy tonight. I don't think the gift of prophecy today has the authority of the Old Testament writing prophets or Jesus or the apostles and nevertheless is real and is prompted by the Holy Spirit, sustained by the Holy Spirit, and does not have intrinsic divine authority. Now, one of the reasons this just kind of sticks in our craw I saw it on Wednesday night, I felt it in myself, is that we don't have categories for this. 
I didn't grow up with a category for this. I didn't grow up with a category in my thinking for spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, fallible speech. Contradiction. I don't have a category for that. Most people today in the church don't have a category for that. We have two categories. The category of true prophet whom you obey at the cost of your life, or a false prophet who, if he misses one time, is to be stoned, Acts 18.20. Those are our two categories. And if we hear this strange thing coming across now, both, I think, in the Old Testament, as I'll try to show tonight, and in the New Testament, that doesn't look quite like that. It's not awful, and he's a false prophet, and it doesn't seem to be Scripture-quality inspired infallible utterances that go down with Jesus and Paul, it seems to be something else. What is it? Must create a category for this. That's my conviction. Now, let me try to ask or answer this question. Somebody may say, look, if it's, if it's fallible, if it's all mixed up with human imperfection and error, and it has to be tested, and only part of it might be useful, my goodness, what good is it? I mean, it's just a mess. It'd, get, it'd be more confusing and more misleading. I mean, let's just not even worry about it. That kind of attitude, let me just ask you to compare the gift of prophecy with the gift of teaching. Both of them, they're alike in a lot of ways. Let's think about the gift of teaching for a minute. The gift of teaching is prompted and sustained by the Holy Spirit. I take it that's what a gift of the Spirit means. If something is a gift of the Spirit, the Spirit is moving. He's doing something to, to make it happen and to make it good and helpful for the church. So the gift of teaching, when it's in exercise, is prompted by the Holy Spirit, is sustained by the Holy Spirit, and we would all agree, I think, that it is rooted in an infallible revelation. That's the difference. One of the differences between prophecy and teaching and is that teaching always is a spirit-prompted, spirit-guided explanation of this book. That's what teaching is. A received tradition, which is the prophetic and apostolic infallible word, now in the church by the gift of teaching is unfolded and explained for the edification of the church. But, would anybody here say that it is infallible? That is the teaching, my teaching. Your Sunday school teacher's teaching. Any radio preacher's teaching. Is it infallible? It's spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, we would all say, fallible. Is it, is it, does it have divine authority? Ask that question. Does, does the, the fruit of the gift of teaching have divine authority? And I think you'd probably say, well, sort of, but not. Not the same way the Bible does. That is, it's not intrinsic. It's derivative. If it agrees well with this revelation, then it sort of takes on a secondary authority and it ought to be obeyed. But in and of itself, it's not the authority in the church. 
My preaching is not the authority in the church. This is the authority in the church. And to the degree that I come true with this and line up with it and get in step with it, then you will feel a, a sense of authority coming through my teaching. And yet, even though it's fallible, and even though it is uh, imperfect, would any of you say it's therefore useless? We don't need teachers. Let's get rid of all preachers, all teachers, all radio preachers, all Sunday school teachers. We don't need that. It's just a mess. I mean, there's so much fallibility. There's so much imperfection. There's so much of their own humanity that gets mixed up. I mean, the attitudes that come through in their preaching and teaching. And I mean, it's just, what good is teaching? It's just a mess. Nobody in this room almost is going to. We don't need teachers. We have the anointing. We don't have anybody. You know, get rid of all teachers. Just everybody take the Bible and go off by themselves. Now, most of you aren't going to say that because you know that the New Testament gives teachers to the church. But why do you find teaching so helpful when it comes through such a sinner like me? Why do I get so many cards and letters? Why do people tell me all the time that their faith is built up by my preaching? When I'm so imperfect, I make mistakes, I get mad, I sin, I'm just such a lousy, no good person. You saw somebody said amen. <laughs> just, just the truth, right, in general. <laughs> sort of in general. I love you. Where was I? <laughs> Why do you find this so helpful? Well, I don't know, except that God appointed teaching in the church for the edification of the saints. And I just want to now compare it with um, prophecy. No, I've got to ask one more question. You got me all took here, Patricia. I've got to ask one more question. Why? Why is uh, prophecy or teaching so uh, imperfect? If it's spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, this revelation, why is it imperfect? And there's three simple reasons. You'll all agree with them, I'm sure. I'm a teacher, okay? When I open this book and perceive the infallible revelation, number one, my perception is imperfect. Number two, when I close the book and start getting out my pencil and paper and start thinking about the revelation, my thinking is imperfect and fallible. And third, when I get done with my perception and my thinking and start teaching, my teaching is imperfect and fallible. So this book doesn't get faulted. I'm the fault. My perception, my thinking, my delivery are all human through and through. And therefore open to testing, correction, they're not infallible. And yet people get helped. Don't worry about it too much. It builds up. Awesome. Let's just think about that in relation to prophecy. Prophecy is prompted by the Spirit. Prophecy is sustained by the Spirit. Prophecy, I'm going to argue more clearly tonight, is rooted in a revelation that is given by the Holy Spirit, in the mind of the prophet. And God makes no mistakes. God never lies. Therefore, anything God says into the mind of a prophet is infallible and true. But now think about it. Suppose it's a slight, quick vision. Your old men will see vision. 
suppose it's a vision. Or suppose it's just a, a thought that the Holy Spirit sows, a word. Well, three things have to happen before that hits the church. One, it has to be perceived. And we're already told we see it in a mirror dimly, hazy. So the prophet perceives the revelation in his head imperfectly. Number two, it's thought about, and he, he ponders it, and he ponders imperfectly. And number three, he speaks it out, and he speaks it imperfectly. Why do we jump to the conclusion that this will be unhelpful? Teaching is not unhelpful. The point I'm trying to make is that we need a new category. We need a category for spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, edifying, fallible speech. That we need to get beyond the either-or category of false prophet who should be stoned true prophet who should be obeyed without question. There is a third category in the Bible. When you weigh all the biblical material about prophecy in the Old and New Testament, these two categories do not suffice. To morning, it will be again tonight. Let me close by drawing your attention to the text where I get this idea of sifting. Any word that comes as a prophetic utterance needs to be sifted. Get it? From 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, 22, where a very, very relevant word that hit me in a fresh way as Tom was teaching on Wednesday night about attitudes towards spiritual gifts, which you all could have been here. He took this text, which says in verse 19, of 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, implying that they sometimes are very despicable. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The reason I stress everything and what is good is that this is a, not a test of prophets. It's a test of prophecies. The assumption here is that the prophet is genuine. The assumption is that he speaks some things helpful and some things unhelpful. That's the new category that you need to create in your mind if it's not already there. A true prophet in the church not even thought of in terms of the kind of biblical prophets that spoke with absolutely inspired utterances, with intrinsic authority, but rather another kind of speech, vision, an idea, thought coming to the mind, imperfectly perceived, imperfectly pondered, imperfectly delivered, useful for the church when properly weighed and considered. What hit me on Wednesday night was the connection between don't quench the spirit, don't despise this event. I'll tell you, I've got enough experiences in my life to make me hate prophets. Seven years ago when I was teaching on this, Brittany Moore came to me and delivered a prophecy. Well, I was pregnant with Barnabas and started 
started to shake. She said, this is the sign that I'm going to deliver prophecy. She wrote, and she said, your fourth child's going to be a girl, and Noel's going to die in childhood. That has happened to me several times. It happened to me two weeks ago again. I have lots of reasons to despise prophecy. I believe with all my heart the Lord is telling me, I guess is I could match you story for story about why messy to I am not preaching my experience. Father in heaven, many questions remain. My prayer is that any who need repentance for quenching the Spirit by despising this gift, help us to repent. Make us humble, docile, careful, biblically obedient to the command earnestly desire that you may prophesy. Tonight, Lord, when we gather and Learn again. My prayer is that when we gather around John and Joby Morgan, that the spirit of prophecy come and meet us there. That perhaps this afternoon you would bring to mind, in people's minds, a word for John and Joby Morgan that you want them to hear. I'm going to give an occasion tonight for anyone who senses that they have something for them to deliver it. Not in the kind of presumptuous or proud way that says, thus saith the Lord and you better do what I say or else, but rather the humble, I sense the Lord has led me to say, and now would you please seriously consider. Father, teach us these things. Grant it to have its appropriate place in the life of the last days. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network.
paid churchgoers looking for a little morning inspiration? Well, listen to Morning Inspiration and the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
in black and white, it's printed in ink, bro, I can make a scene. It's been no tabloid, what's I could see, this philosophy.
following is a presentation of God Questions Ministries. Is salvation by faith alone or by faith plus works? This is perhaps the most important question in all of Christian theology. This question is the cause of the Reformation, the split between the Protestant churches and the Catholic Church. This question is a key difference between biblical Christianity and most of the Christian cults. Is salvation by faith alone or by faith plus works? Am I saved just by believing in Jesus, or do I have to believe in Jesus and do certain things? The question of faith alone or faith plus works is made difficult by some hard-to-reconcile Bible passages. Compare Romans 3, verse 28, and Galatians 3, verse 24, with James 2, verse 24. Some see a difference between Paul, salvation which is by faith alone, and James, salvation which is by faith plus works. Paul dogmatically says that justification is by faith alone, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, while James appears to be saying that justification is by faith plus works. This apparent problem is answered by examining what exactly James is talking about. James is refuting the belief that a person can have faith without producing any good works, James 2, verses 17 and 18. James is emphasizing the point that genuine faith in Christ will produce a changed life and good works, James 2, verses 20 through 26. James is not saying that justification is by faith plus works, but rather that a person who is truly justified by faith will have good works in his or her life. If a person claims to be a believer but has no good works in his or her life, then he or she likely does not have genuine faith in Christ, James 2, verses 14, 20, and 26. Paul says the same thing in his writings, the good fruit believers should have in their lives is listed in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Immediately after telling us that we are saved by faith, not works, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul informs us that we are created to do good works, verse 10. Paul expects just as much of a changed life as James does. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. James and Paul do not disagree in their teaching regarding salvation. They approach the same subject from different perspectives. Paul simply emphasized that justification is by faith alone, while James put emphasis on the fact that genuine faith in Christ produces good works. God Questions Ministry seeks to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by providing biblical answers to today's questions. Online at gotquestions.org. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
This is Ann Graham Lotz with Daily Light for Daily Living. What seemingly impossible task has God given you to do? Have you done it, or are you procrastinating? What if Noah had procrastinated and told God he would build the ark, but at a time when he felt more capable, or when his financial situation was more stable, or when his family was more self-sufficient, or when it was just more convenient? If Noah had the attitude many of us do when God gives us an assignment beyond our ability, he would have been totally unprepared for the horrifying devastation when it struck, and we wouldn't be here today to talk about it. Instead of procrastinating, Noah obeyed without question or hesitation. Genesis 6.22 says that he did everything just as God commanded him. Listen to me. What is your impossible task? Obey God just as he has commanded. You'll be glad you did. This is Ann Graham Lott. It is with sound mind and body that I, James Fredericks III, after fighting with all direct family members for decades, leave my entire fortune of $32 million to the one friend I had in the end, the package delivery guy, Matt Sunder. Woohoo! Yeah! I had a feeling about this! Uh-huh! I'm rich! Oh, this cannot be happening. Actually, it's not happening. What? what? And it never will. I don't get it. There aren't even people here. That's just one of those murmuring sound effects. Seriously? Listen, if you want to have money in your future, don't rely on luck. Huh. Put 10 bucks away each month. Cook once in a while instead of eating out. Okay. Pay down your high interest credit card. Right. Small changes today, big bucks tomorrow. So no inheritance? Uh, no. Go to FeedThePig.org for more free ideas. FeedThePig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. And just to be clear, no inheritance, right? All right. This next question is for Caroline. Caroline, if you take the bus 60 miles to school at 5.30 a.m. and the bus is traveling at an average of 30 miles per hour, how are you going to get to your prenatal appointment and still make it to homeroom on time? Some students are tackling more than just their schoolwork, which is why more than 30% of them aren't graduating. But you can give them the boost they need to make it through by visiting BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council.
Would you join with me, please, in prayer? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, thank you that you loved me enough that you became a man and died on a cross, paid the price for all the wrong things that I have done. I'm sorry for my sin. It's my sin that puts you on that cross. And I'm sorry. I don't want to live in rebellion to you anymore. I ask you to forgive me. And tonight I open my heart and I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of sin. You are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh, God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Hallelujah. Saved. Saved. ask you friends in closing tonight have you done this? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to that obedience of faith? Have you come to that place of true repentance and true faith? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting alone tonight in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For there is no other way, there is no other message. For there is no other way, there is no other message. Oh, come to him, come to the Saviour tonight. Come to him just as you are. Come to him in your sin. Come to him in all your needs. And cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself wholly to him. And you too will enter into that joy of sins forgiven, peace with God, and eternal, abundant life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For how will you escape if you neglect so great salvation? For how will you escape? If you neglect so great
Sam Radio Network.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.